welcome to the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. Covering all things science relating to nutrition, training, recovery, and more. Who knows, we might even sprinkle in a dick joke or two. <laughs> another day, another episode. Welcome back, listeners. You're here with me, Lizzie, and my co-host, Mr. Dean McKill. That is I. And we have absolutely no direction for this podcast. We are joined with the new Flex Success coach, Thomas Clark. Welcome, Thomas Clark. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. We uh, thought we'd just get you on and have a chat and just see where it leads. I can't believe she's called you Thomas. Well, look, it's your username uh, on the screen, so it was front of my mind. How do you feel about being called Thomas? Do you feel like you're in trouble? Look... Not really. That being said, definitely the only person who calls me Thomas is my mum. But like I had it because I was using a lot for uni. So I had um I had a rather comical Zoom nickname for a bit. Um, but that quickly got changed when I realised I joined a very important meeting. Um, what was the name? Oh, it was a bit of, we had a Joe Exotic themed um zoom meeting like me and a bunch of mates during lockdown um so yeah that was good fun and i had a funny background but um probably not the best for a professional move no so who were you out of the tiger king crew oh i was joe exotic (laughs) (laughs) if anybody hasn't watched that i mean we have something worth sharing part of this podcast (laughs) which i'm gonna jump the gun and say get on that have a watch the tiger king i mean you need to have nothing else going on in your life to really enjoy it because it's actually fairly lengthy but my god what a weird little docuseries (laughs) oh mate and you you watch the first one you think oh like this is weird it can't go any further and then it does try try and give the listeners at home a like one minute synopsis of what the tiger king series is so, oh man, tough one. There's a gay polygamist who owns and sells tigers um, who's in an ongoing dispute with a woman who's trying to run a tiger sanctuary whose husband may have disappeared and been eaten by a tiger. <laughs> yep. That'd be my best sentence of it. <laughs> yep. But then there's also a little bit of uh, weird um, grooming from from uh, the polygamist as well, which kind of like, oh, this just got a bit awkward. Yeah, and a weirdly large amount of meth. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's a lot of death. There's tiger fights. There's people getting attacked by tigers. Then there's rich men infiltrating the tiger industry. Then there's con art. Yeah. Like, this thing is crazy. That does there's have music videos. Hey? There's music videos? Yeah, there's music videos. <laughs> yeah. It's genuinely got it all. This sounds like my idea of a good Saturday night. Meth, tigers, and music videos. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> I'm in. It is the weirdest thing ever. Now, uh, Tom, for the listeners who don't know you, because uh, you haven't been introduced to our audience yet, but you will. Well, you know what? It's actually currently we're filming this in the probation period, so you may fuck up and we may not release this podcast and introduce you to our audience. <laughs> but assuming you're as awesome as we think you are, tell the listeners... Um, who you are, a little bit about you, and uh, why you joined the team. Okay, yeah, cheers. Um, I'm Tom, or Thomas, if anyone if I'm in trouble. Um, <laughs> and I, so I started off in the fitness industry a bit over three years ago as a personal trainer. Um, and while I was still studying at uni, and 
the more people I trained, the more I sort of found that training modalities, which seem really different, often would still be capable of getting similar results and making people better. Um, and I was really, still am really into training. Um, I compete as a powerlifter. But the thing I sort of realized as I did more and more work and I did more and more research was that that side of nutrition plays an increasingly larger and larger role in how we respond and what our results are like. Um, so then I just sort of dive down that path, like dive down that pathway and down that rabbit hole. I'm currently doing an honors year looking at the impacts of nutrition on behavior. So like looking at like macronutrient ratios, like protein, fats, and carbs, and how they impact anxiety and depression in rotor models, which is super interesting. Um, yeah, that's me basically. Cool. Tell us a little bit about uh, that research in rodent models. Yeah. So what I, I'm, I'm really lucky actually, I'm in a broader group which received a big government grant to look at what kind of impact nutrition has paternally um, on offspring. So like what kind of impact is, does your father's diet have on you? Um, and so like this broader group is doing a whole bunch of different stuff and I got given the behavioral assays. Um, so I get to sit down. I like we have the first grouping had 60 like fathers and we have about 200, yeah, about 200 offspring. Um, and we're looking at whether the diets and the intakes of the fathers is predictive of any particular behavioral traits in their offspring. Mm. Super interesting. Um, yeah, really cool. And what are you finding so far? Oh boy, it's infinitely more complex and confusing than I would have hoped. Um, <laughs> but no, I think the, one of the really interesting things which I've taken out of it in a practical sense, because I don't think it's useful as like practitioners to go, Hey, like high fat intakes potentially make you more anxious. But I think it's really worthwhile thinking about the way that our nutrition environment influences our behavior in ways that we don't really, or you might not necessarily plan or think about. So even just talking about how if you put mice in a room like depending on how palatable the food is or how nutrient dense is, they're going to gain different amounts of weight, even though theoretically they're all eating similar amounts. Um, so it's definitely made me really think a lot about how there are, com there are components of our practice and the way we work, which may not necessarily be um, like, you can't always depend on people to have um, discipline or depend on people to like freely choose this or that. Sometimes we need to have a look at our broader food environment and make like conscious mindful manipulations of what's around us to try and stop people overindulging or improve our ability to manage our intake. Oh, it's a super interesting topic because I don't think people give enough uh, magnitude or weight to how easily they are being influenced in a food environment that they aren't even really consciously aware of that exists. Well, I mean, we're in an obesogenic environment, it's a big word, where there's highly palatable, cheap foods around us all the time and a lot of our events and celebrations and social lives are centred around food. This isn't a problem if we lived in a cage and we had to hunt for our food and uh, we're wired to seek really delicious or really sweet food and our biology hasn't really caught up with our social evolution. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's simple as saying just eat when you're hungry or, you know, actually I don't mind some aspects of the intuitive eating, um, 
framework. But I think if we're just just doing that, then guess what's going to happen in an obesogenic environment? Like intuitively, I want to eat a whole fucking block of chocolate. Yeah, and then again, like you said, there's likely some impacts there paternally and even maternally and then family environment, family yeah. environment. Everything's impacting you and you don't even realise it. Yeah, and a lot of people yeah. might put that down to genetics. My mum and dad are overweight, therefore, well, is it is it really genetics? Like maybe there's an element perhaps, but is it just the environment that you've grown up with and yeah. that's now your normal? Well, that's epigenetics. Yeah, well, like, if you look, look 100 years ago and like obesity was very rare. Yeah. Like people just genuinely weren't like a few, the few people who would be, would typically be much higher class um, and have servants doing things for them and not necessarily have to do as much in terms of how much work they do. Um, I know Eric Helms talks a lot about like the Amish um, and like subsistence farmers and hunter gatherers and stuff and how they all have really low body fat percentages and like just simply by virtue of the fact they're doing ridiculous amounts of movement. And they're eating like generally lower caloric density, um, less refined diets. Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of like, um, we always talk about the fact that if you look at the research, you can't necessarily replicate obviously research into the real world model. And like people may look at yours and be like, ah, like rodents, you can't do that. Like the cool thing about the rodents is that you can have 200 offspring that you can essentially control Mm -hmm. and and monitor and look at trends and behaviors and and all that kind of stuff. But one of the downfalls of the the science in, in our world is that, you can't replicate life, but if you actually were to look in at, a lab, in a lab, yeah. But if you were to look at those societies, they're essentially a little bit of a controlled lab setting because they're not infiltrated by today's society, like Amish populations. Yeah, yeah. like they're, they're in their own like little lab, and they have less less um, variables, confounding variables coming in to impact them. So we're seeing more traditionally what we would see humans behave like. Yeah. And that's um, David Robinheimer. Oh, I hope I pronounce his name. Um, co-author of a really good book called Eat Like the Animals. Um, he's one of the higher-up people in my lab. And what he does is he goes into, like, different, eco- like, different ecological spaces. So he'll go and watch, like, orangutans and their dietary patterns. And then he'll take that data and go, okay, what does that, what does their nutritional environment, what does their experience tell us about nutrition and about ways of eating that we can then extrapolate over into the human world? Um, So like one of the really cool things about the way, like the center I'm in at uni is, is that there's like the whole, the whole point of the CPC, the Charles Perkins Center, is they're trying to look at metabolic disease and obesity and use a multidisciplinary approach to see how can we possibly best manage and improve things. So like on my floor, there's biologists, psychologists, like nutritionists, dietitians, there's people with these really diverse skill sets. And it's about looking at how like no one really has like the one answer on how do we improve this and how do we improve everyone's living standards? Um, Like we, we know that obviously like calories in calories out is a thing. And like plenty of people know that, but there's some missing step, isn't there? Like there's this thing people aren't doing. Mm. Yeah. It's one thing to know and another thing to actually have the skill set to implement it. Um, and, and sustain. To, yeah. And sustain and do so in a way that doesn't cause significant harm to other aspects of people's lives. Mm. So an example would be, um, well, if I use an extreme example, comp prep, mm-hmm. people need to eat significantly less calories and that deficit increases as you get closer to stage most of the time. And um, that will definitely impact 
other aspects of someone's life, like their relationship, their sex drive, which then affects their relationship, <laughs> mm-hmm. their energy levels, maybe uh, how much concentration they have for work, stuff like that. So calories in, calories out, easy done. But how do we incorporate that into our lives without causing harm to other areas? Mm. And I think that's where a good coach or a psychologist or something can, can play a big role. Yeah, I'm, I'm super intrigued about, um, you said CPC Centre is the acronym for where you're at? Yeah. That's, a, that's an awesome thing to hear because when I went through university, there was always this big push for allied health professionals. Like that was, that was the terminology that we used. Like as an exercise scientist, an exercise physiologist, you want to look to your other allied health you know, professional. You want to lean on physios, on doctors, on whoever it is, you know. But there seems to be this weird, weird, weird thing in the nutrition space, at least online and sports performance, and even in, in general fat loss and body composition manipulation. It's almost like there's teams still that exist and people don't like to draw on other people. So like funnily enough, Liz and I, to draw a parallel to this, I've always jokingly said as an exercise science student that the social sciences aren't real sciences because I don't understand them. Well, it's still, well, so it social no. science is my degree, which is still a real science. It absolutely is. But it's because I, you know, you make fun is of it? things you don't understand. <laughs> yes, it is. You make fun of things you don't understand. You right? just failed your probation. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I didn't really understand how social science worked. And because I'm very black and white, very a matter of fact, I need an A plus B equals C scenario. Like I am the guy that's like, tell me about the calories in versus calories out because that's the math that I can play. I don't do very well at the creative concept of like looking at the entire like environment, the ecosystem. So um, that sounds like the kind of place that is really actually tapping into the allied health professional concept where they're drawing on all different people for their skill set to come to one collective win, which is awesome. That was my yeah, it's really like it's I think it's a really good model and like not only is it a good model in terms of problem solving like from a professional and like developmental perspective it's been really cool um, because I've gotten to see like this is how people who are individually really good at their jobs but do things so differently all approach this problem yeah yeah, so one of them, like, yeah. I was gonna say every one of them would think that they somehow have at least a answer um, but collectively, they're coming to try and improve how that uh, looks at a visit. Well, process. it's interesting because one of my majors at uni is um, anthropology. So looking at like human behavior and belief systems and stuff like that. But I also did my first year at uni, I did chiropractic science. So I also did biology and blah, blah, blah at uni as well. Mm-hmm. And looking at like human behavior from a biological perspective, like, oh, it makes a lot of sense. But then finishing my major in anthropology, I was like, well, maybe it is more nurture than mm. it is nature. And, but you can kind of, I think anyone that has any idea about anything has one leg over each side of the fence can see, well, maybe yeah. it's not this or that. Maybe it's a combination of the two or, or more. Well, it's, it's sort of like, like, I think at least anecdotally, the pattern I seem to see like in people is people who don't know a lot will often like hold like a hard and fast opinion. And that opinion, like they may completely change that opinion. Like I used to work with someone who I won't name. Um, you should. Who, fucking Mary. <laughs> pardon? I said fucking Mary. It was Mary. Oh, <laughs> no, it's a, this person was like super, super on board, like the clean eating bandwagon. Like you've got to eat organic, you've got to eat this, you've got to eat that. And then over a period of like two weeks, all of a sudden became super pro for fish and macros. 
Um, and it was really interesting because an extreme at either end of the spectrum is going to be wrong at least some of the time. And like, there's probably this really nice mediated position in the middle where we can go on a case by case basis. This is the most appropriate tool, but because there wasn't critical thinking occurring and there wasn't this idea of like, what about this works? People just jump from these big extremes to the other. And then it's sort of, as you learn and like, I've even done this myself, like as you learn and more and more happens, you sort of settle into this like agnostic middle ground where you're like, like things matter, but also a lot of things don't necessarily matter so much. And it's about like, how do you tailor that? That's kind of wise. The name flex success um, was born from the label flexible dieting. Um, But we've moved away from that over the years. And I like to think about the word flex in our name flex success a little differently now, because people have taken it to the extreme and don't consider food quality um, and, and we don't want to be known as the people that say, yeah, just eat pop tarts and psyllium husk and protein powder. Cause you can lose weight on that because you can, but what about general health and well-being and satiation and, you know, all the other stuff. So there's, we can pull elements from clean eating and elements from flexible dieting and meet in the middle, like you said. Yeah. I think what, what really is highlighted there too, is that the, the, the less, you know, the easier it is to have a black and white answer. Because you actually don't know where you're right, where you're wrong, or where you may be neutral. Mm. Uh, and then as you start to learn more, you start to really have a fear of saying, yes, that's the answer, but rather there might be lots of them. And you become the very typical, it depends coach, oh my uh, which is perfectly fine. So long as the, it mm. depends is followed up with a reason as to the why. Uh, but it is, it is a weird thing. Like I remember, yeah, like everyone that starts out, there's hard and fast ways. This is the way, not there is multiple ways. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Two days ago, I was a guest on a podcast and at the end of it, Dean goes, oh, how was the podcast? And I was like, mm, I'm not really sure because they asked me a lot of questions that it's not that I couldn't answer it, but I gave a lot of it depends. And it was annoying because I feel like what they wanted from me is just like, yeah, one gram of protein per kilo of body weight, like, you know, and it's just not that simple. And I don't want to, I mean, I think we should be simplifying things, but we don't want to oversimplify things. I think we should give context mm. and it depends is appropriate most of the time. Well, with that context, people don't have the opportunity to even apply it. It just becomes, it just becomes kind of noise to most people. I think like you say, it depends on like, okay, thanks for nothing. Like that didn't, I'll help, Google the answer. That didn't help me either. Like not giving an answer is also problematic. Mm. Um, yeah. And it's also, it's potentially like a, Hey, it's potentially like a lazy or like a bit of a cowardly option too, because like, obviously you have the potential to be wrong. Yeah. Um, this is something I was talking to my supervisor about, um, because I'm currently writing a, a paper looking at potential, like the impact of like gender and in, in the, in our own models, Easter stage on anxiety behaviors and like learned anxiety, um, and learned helplessness and things like that. And, I was talking to my supervisor about it. I was like, oh, but what if this is wrong? Like, I think that the thing you never really think about is like, like, I guess getting better, especially in science is sort of built on us progressively falsifying things. So it's like you pose that hypothesis and you're almost aiming to prove this completely false because you can't prove something entirely true. So it's like you're putting forward these ideas in this framework and then you're deliberately trying to falsify them so you can take that next step forward. But when you're trying to be like a health practitioner or when you're trying to talk to someone about training, you almost don't want to 
often people's egos find it hard to be falsified in front of their clients. You know what I mean? To turn around and go, Hey, like I was wrong about this. This is how I think this can get better, which is like absolutely terrifying. Mm. Yep. I've just got two questions to follow up from that. But firstly, I really yeah. like that. Um, Jackson Pios recently did some research on refeeds and diet breaks and he's been implementing them for years with his clients. And um, when, when we, when he was on the podcast with us anyways, he hadn't, uh, analyzed all of the data yet. So didn't have any conclusive things to say, but he said right now it looks like I'm wrong. And what I really loved about that is he just straight out said it. It wasn't, there was no kind of trying to wiggle around it. He was like, it looks like I've been doing things for years with my clients. It actually doesn't have as much evidence as I, I thought. Mm -hmm. Um, so I thought, I thought that was a, a big sign of maturity from him and something that we, we all should be doing. Yeah. But um, yeah, so for listeners that don't understand uh, how scientific research works, even social science, Dean, <laughs> uh, can you explain the null hypothesis? Because you just mentioned that we're trying to falsify something, not prove that something mm-hmm. is right. So that's the null hypothesis. Can you just unpack that a little bit for people that don't understand? Yeah, so like part of how we, like part of how we do science is before like before you run an experiment you sit down and you set out like a a hypothesis like a null hypothesis and an alternative hypothesis and the idea behind doing that is the actually i should probably have a good example for this um but like the idea of that is you're saying like if there's like this is the chance that there's no difference between these two conditions um so say your model might be mice which are fed high protein um, put on less weight than mice which are fed high fat. Um, So then you hypothesize, like your null hypothesis is that there's no difference between the two conditions. Um, And then your alternative hypothesis is, hey, there's actually like the high fat mice get fat. Um, Then that way, when you do your statistical testing and your analyses, you can sit down and the idea is to reject the null hypothesis. So like um, in this particular case, you're going, okay, hey, there actually is a difference. So you've disproven that there's no difference there. Um, Part of that idea comes from a bloke called Popper um, who has this idea of falsification. So the classic example for this is that all swans are, so like say if you were to say all swans are black or is it all swans are white? (laughs) I'm not a swan expert. Um, um, if you use the example of, Hey, all swans are black. All it takes is seeing one white swan to prove that that statement isn't true. But if you have, if you say all swans are black, it's basically like, you're not going to find every swan on earth to confirm they're black. Mm. It's much easier to disprove that statement. Mm, Absolutely. Um, the other thing that I wanted to ask about is you mentioned that your research was on gender differences. Is that the, is, do you say gender differences in your paper? As opposed to sex. The reason I'm asking is because there's a big difference between gender and sex. And I don't believe mice have gender. So this is something I'm currently being, actually as like, look, as a straight white male, I have to be very careful with my words. Um, and this is particularly a case because I'm talking about differences which are primarily hormonally mediated. Um, so I actually, I could probably tell you right now if I pull out the paper, 
Um, but I believe I probably used the word gender there incorrectly with you. Uh-huh. Um, okay. And you would say sex. Yeah, I apologize for that. No, so the, the focus, the focal point of that paper is looking at in what ways do our hormones interact with the way our brains function, um, particularly through like our hypothal- hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, so HPA axis. Now that's um, and looking. <laughs> that was that was a mouthful. Um, but looking at the way we respond to threats and issues um, like that, there's some really really cool stuff, particularly because like men are comparatively or biological men are comparatively more stable in terms of their hormonal status. Um, but women have these like waves across their menstrual cycle. Um, they're being like actual stages within their menstrual cycle where people are better at having fear extinction. So like if you're like the whole principle of exposure therapy, when you have anxiety is you extinguish that fear. So I'm terrified of swans. <laughs> um, at certain times, because of your hormonal setup, your brain is better disposed to learn that they are no longer an issue. Um, so there's some really, really cool stuff happening in that kind of space. Um, and there's a lot, like there's a real large amount of like the literature on nutrition and anxiety is a mess. Um, because part of the issue with nutrition is there are so many things which are confounded. Cool. Like if I give one group high protein and one group high fat by virtue of those two things being manipulated, something's happened to carbohydrates as well in the, in between um, it's really difficult to try and match things and make sure everything's accounted for. Yeah. Um, so part of what the meta-analysis I'm doing and part of what my personal research is about is trying to figure out what exact element of this is the thing which is making things worse. Mm-hmm. Like, is it actually the fact that we're eating higher fat intakes? Is it the fact that we're getting fatter on average? Um, is it like a metabolic disease thing? Because there's some evidence that like, like your brain's metabolically very expensive. Um, potentially having metabolic disease could have implications for your brain function. Like on what level is the thing which actually matters the most, um, which is a really interesting but difficult question. I wish I had the answer. Yeah, you're trying to find like which dial is the one that turns up or turns down that factor. But even then, like even if you shifted uh, protein and, and fat, like you said, you're also going to shift micronutrients. Yeah, so, like, so it's not one variable you're changing. This is the, mm. this is a really really difficult thing with nutrition is that is it is quite literally I think impossible to match scenarios in a way in which that you can actually say this particular thing has made this. Impact. Yeah, this was the one variable. That's the, yeah. the really frustrating thing with social science research that you can't just change or account for one variable because your lab is the world mm. and people are yeah. so complicated. Um, yeah. That's why I said it wasn't science because I couldn't understand it. <laughs> Well, that's, this is like, I often have this argument with my brother, um, who's a, he's a physics major. Um, and I joke about like the three body problem because like in physics, there's this thing about it's, you you can't with like a hundred percent certainty, I believe predict where if you have three bodies orbiting each other, where any one body will be at any one time. Um, and you look at like using that as a metaphor, like look at nutrition, look at, like look at social sciences, you have like potentially hundreds of different variables all interacting, impacting each other. It's like how on earth do you begin to make any kind of assertion 
with like good confidence. Yeah. It's a challenge. So um, what is the best diet to follow then, Tom? <laughs> well, definitely keto. <laughs> um, but vegan keto, preferably. <laughs> no, it's vegan like, keto with no, intermittent fasting. No, it's actually vegan carnivorous keto. And what I mean by that is you have to eat, you have to eat um, <laughs> vegan meat only diets. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Are you a carnivore <laughs> if you eat uh, ve- vegan meat? I'm going to go and tell people that I'm a carnivore vegan and just see. <laughs> well, you're sort of taking the best bits of both, aren't you? Yeah. Or you, you, <laughs> o- you only cook uh, your vegetable matter in animal fat? <laughs> is, that a, is that a vegan carni- carnivore? I guess I so. That's pretty funny. Hey, I just have one question about exposure for my own personal benefit. You mentioned that um, exposure therapy. And yeah. with females having more fluctuating hormones, you're saying that there's some, um, some moments where they might benefit from exposure therapy more if I'm understanding what you're saying. Are you talking about over the space of a month because of their monthly cycle or like time of day? So specifically within that month. So I've, I've just put on my notes for it, sorry. Yeah. So there's a 2010 paper from Milad um, which talks about how like women are better at like extinction learning during the luteal phase because of high estrogen, um, but are comparatively worse at it during the follicular phase. Right. Um, which is interesting. Like the, the part of, again, part of the confounds obviously is with women, you have like those two main hormones of estrogen and progesterone, both doing different things throughout that time. Um, it's not as simple as like just simply turning one dial. It's like you've got two working concurrently. Yeah, interesting. Ooh. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's super interesting. Like it, and I think, I think, like evolutionary psychology is super interesting. Mm. But you think about like the whys of why things like that would exist, um, and it's a really, it's a fascinating discussion. Yeah, because God. Yeah, no, because it's like, yeah. Precisely. Um, yeah. In that, like, there's obviously been a stage where, like, say, like, tell, like, for men, like, if you, like, dose, if you dose mice up with, like, heaps of testosterone, their, like, risk-taking profile goes up enormously. They just love taking risks. Um, and, I like, there's a lot of testosterone. <laughs> yeah, you are yeah. a bit more of a risk-taker. I'm a huge risk-taker compared to you. Yeah. <laughs> gone um but like there's obviously there's obviously been a stage where like males who took comparatively more risks and had higher testosterone did better from like an evolutionary fitness perspective Mm. and likewise even with women like women who took slightly more risks at specific times have obviously done better Mm. um yeah yeah i find that intriguing because like uh we may make fun of varying diet camps and all the rest but the one thing that the paleo group have probably brought to the forefront of most people's minds is that we still do have this inherent biology that has evolved over time and sometimes if we look back on like what how we may have behaved back in the good old days <laughs> that there's some indications as to like how we're going astray now uh, and we and whenever somebody has a question to me that seems like a little bit crazier and i do typically just say like hey let's peel back the onion to where we began and like let's have a really big think about like why would that make sense? You know, and most of the time it's like, nah, it doesn't. Because even though our biology is evolving, it's so slow compared to our environment's evolution. Mm. 
Like we're not yeah. built, like our biology isn't built to be in this obesogenic environment or yeah. why do we have stress responses for meetings? We're not being chased by a tiger or chasing the tiger. Like it just, it just doesn't make sense. You would not find Biscoff in a cave. <laughs> I don't want to live in any cave that doesn't have Biscoff. <laughs> well, like, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's an interesting discussion because that argument or like that, like appeal to nature is concurrently sort of, proven and disproven by that like i think it's it's a good way of making some like rational decisions but i think also because we don't live in the wild and because like we drive cars and we sit in front of computers for so long there are probably elements of that wisdom that like like barefoot running is a great example right there was a stage where like everyone was bit where everyone was like saying barefoot running was like the thing because you evolved to run this way and like there's probably truth in that like the anatomy of your lower body is super well suited for like jogging really long distances. But the issue is because we've grown up in this environment where we haven't done a lot of that. If you take a bunch of people in their twenties and thirties and make them run barefoot, they can't do it. Well, and also we um, have bitumen now. Mm. Yeah. Like, it is true. Like that, yeah, that naturist concept where they only want to try and live by yeah. what we did a thousand years ago. And like, now there's much more there. weight in the upper body on the joints and the joints don't have the stability that they should or the mobility because yeah. of the environment we've grown up in. So it's like putting, mm, I'm not going to say a different machine because we're the same machine, but you know. Well, it's like the reason why we don't put a Datsun on a car like a race track, track against mm -hmm. the current Ferrari because shit evolved, man. Like they still have the same engine. They still use the same style of pistons. They're just not as, as effective in today's day and age. I'm not even a car guy. Somehow I got that analogy. That was good. I was about to say, I don't know anything about cars, but I got that analogy too. Let's finish this part. I, 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 yeah, look, I know nothing about cars. So I'm just going to nod. You know. <laughs> piston. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. The piston car. This, this is the piston. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's some super interesting uh, conversation. I'm, I'm keen to see even like where, when, when are you due to finish your uh, discussion and research on, on your meta-analysis and that too? The, I'm due to, I've got my thesis as you know, November 13. Um, and that's two parts. So I'm, I've literally like, as of Monday, I've crunched all the numbers for my meta analysis, um, which was like, that was my little like coronavirus lockdown project. So I was spending like nine, 10 hours a day, just like sitting at my desk, like trying to do that. Um, but I, I'm caught, I'm very cautious against giving like hard and fast answers because I haven't actually spoken to anyone smarter than me about what the answers mean. Um, so I don't want to listen to this podcast back in two months and go, Oh, I should have brought this up. Um, but yes, yeah, so hopefully that's fairly soon. And then the second part of my thesis, which is on the paternal effects. So like how your dad's diet influences you. That should be, that'll be a little bit close towards November. Mm, yeah, cool. Yeah. I think that's a smart choice, mate, because um, like Liz said before, we had Jackson on the podcast and he alluded to the fact that perhaps that one, there wasn't as much of a physiological shift from diet breaks and refeeds as what we expected from like a leptin point of view is what he was alluding to. He also alluded to the fact that perhaps a diet break didn't have a positive impact on performance, which I was like, okay. That doesn't that, make any sense. And he was like, yeah, I, was like I know, right? And then the yeah. other day I messaged him because he's now actually, uh, I think he's um, put that, his thesis he's in. He's submitted. Yep, he submitted. Yeah. And I was like, oh, now I'm keen. He's like, yeah, I've found out some more things. And like, there's that some other interesting stuff. That contradicts what I said on your podcast. contradicts what I said. And I was like, for fuck's sake, like, 
Like, way, way to make me sit on the edge of my seat. But, um, yeah, so I think it's a smart choice. Well done. Mm. Um, and Tom, because you're going to be our new Flex Success Coach, can you tell the listeners kind of who you're interested in working with and why? Clearly rodents. <laughs> yeah. If there's any rats yeah. out there that want to inquire for coaching. If you're, with a, sl- if you're a slightly chunky mouse, like, hit me <laughs> up. Um, I promise I won't euthanize you at the end like I did to the other ones. Uh, <laughs> the, um, I sort of, I view my role as a coach as broadly being a problem solver. Um, so like the, I don't know, something I've spoken to you guys about previously is like, I really like talking to people and sort of trying to figure out this is what's happening with them and this is what the best solution is for them. Um, I do a lot of work with gen pop, um, but I'm also looking at doing more work with like powerlifting and athletic populations as time goes on. So yeah. Um, yeah, broadly like that idea of trying to find individualized solutions and like what the best outcome is for this person. Mm, so mainly performance athletes, but also gen pop. Gen pop. Yeah. Performance athletes and some gen pop. Yeah. What we uh, found quite striking about you through the interview process is we asked a lot of people, or maybe I shouldn't say this because then in future when we interview, people will know what to say. <laughs> so I'll, I'll just retweak what I'm about to say. So what we really liked about you, Tom, is um, you mentioned to us that you loved having challenging clients where it, there wasn't an obvious solution and you really had to dig deep and figure out what really works for them. Um, and, and you enjoyed that challenge, whereas a lot of coaches roll their eyes at people who just can't comply, just follow the damn plan. And I don't think that that uh, is the job of any sort of established coach that know what they're doing. We're not here to just prescribe and direct and do as I say. It's a collaborative relationship. It's a respectful, uh-huh. um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a shared journey. It's not just I'm telling you to do this and you bloody do it. Yep. Thank you. No, I, I think like it's, it's very much a career. It's like a career progression thing, right? Because like, I man, I was definitely guilty of it at one stage. Like I remember discovering like counting your calories at about the same time as I discovered like ideas of personal responsibility and like, cho- like free will and choice. And I think as someone who's typically fairly obsessive and fairly disciplined, it's like, one of the challenges as a coach is going, okay, some people aren't as driven. Some people don't want to just like track everything to the nth degree. Some people just want to put in like a 60, 70% effort and get some kind of like solid result. And that's all they want. And I think that's really fine. Like that's really good. But I think that sort of, as you pass through that phase, you go, okay, I've got all the answers, you know, everything's everyone's individual fault and they can just count their calories. And that works really well for this like small portion of the population who are a lot like me. Um, and then I think as I realized, hang on, why doesn't this perfect approach work for everyone? <laughs> it made me more broadly go, okay, obviously. And again, like personal responsibility, I looked at myself and I said, there's obviously a thing I can do better as a coach. Like what things in my own practice can I tinker with to try and make these ideas more accessible to other people? Mm. Um, because like, well, and especially in like an era of Instagram where people have like, like if you have like 10,000 followers, you can probably have enough bulk that you can throw this approach at a whole bunch of people and it works for enough of them that you generally get like positive reviews and good results from people. 
Um, but you're not actually like helping all the people you can help. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Only the people that are exactly like you. Yeah. 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 Paint sure. with the paint with the single brush and hope that somebody is uh, <laughs> just gonna enjoy what you do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, Tom, we've got some questions for you to wrap up the podcast. Starting with something worth sharing. Is there a course, a book, a holiday destination, something in particular you'd like to share with our audience that you think would benefit most people? Something worth sharing. Um, at the moment, actually, yeah, I'm going to give a person a plug here. Um, I've recently gotten into Bill Hartman PT on Instagram, a lot of his stuff. Um, he talks a lot about biomechanics and like human movement, which is something I'm trying to pay a little, which is something I'm growingly aware I don't know nearly enough about. So I'm trying to learn about that. Um, but I think one of the things he does is often you talk to him or often you'll listen to him and he'll have some like profoundly challenging ideas, which aren't entirely congruent with like what you thought previously. Like one of his big things is that there is no sagittal plane and everything is rotational plane. So it's like moving forward is like the summation of a series of rotations that cancel themselves out. And whilst I don't necessarily agree with that entirely, I think that thinking exercise and having your long held beliefs challenged um, to show, again, like stop you hot sitting on one end of the spectrum or the other, but move you into this nice sort of middle ground where you can think about things a bit more laterally. Like, I think that's really useful. Hmm. That isn't true. Cause I thought, how could that be true? And I thought, Hmm, the hips are a rotational uh, body part. To a so are the degree. shoulders. So are the shoulders. So it is a, it is a combination of rotations that put you in the forward direction. Yeah. Well, what about yeah. if I was to stand there and then just do knee flexion? So just bring my heel up to my butt. You'd still get rotation of the hip. So what yeah. I would say is and I think a, a combination of rotations. But that, the movement is just a flexion and extension. Cool. Yeah, at your ankle and your hip, there's also like, like I know at the foot, especially I'm definitely not an expert on this. Um, but at the foot, like through your calcaneus, I believe. And like a few of the bones around there, they have like rotationary type movements again, like that's something I'm trying to learn about. Um, but I think it's a useful thought exercise because you're challenging these sort of long held ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm, yeah. Cool. Bill Hartman. Yep. Write it down. Something we're sharing. Now, if you could resurrect one person from the dead and bring them back to life today, who would that be? Oh, Definitely Elvis Presley. That's a tough one. <laughs> really? Yeah, not Elvis no, no. I'm not interested in Elvis Presley. Is there a language barrier? Yep. Oh, that makes it less fun, I think, yeah. But there's yeah. translators that exist today. It was like, if there was no language barrier, I'd probably, like, I was... So I was a big history nerd at school, um, like did ancient history, um, actually started studying history in English at uni. Um, and I would like, oh, I'd have to go someone like Julius Caesar, um, Alexander the Great, someone who like just real, actually, or even like a philosopher, like even like Plato, um, especially cause like Plato is, Plato's his wrestling name. Like we don't actually know what the name of Plato is. Hmm, like we just same with Epicurus, right? I think that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So someone like that probably. Actually, I'm going to double down. I'm going to say Plato. 
Wasn't Plato um, the teacher of Socrates? Or was it the other way around? I definitely know they're implicated, but I could not tell you for certain. I, yeah, it could, yeah. Okay. One of them was yeah. the teacher of the other. I think it was, yeah. yeah. Mm. I think that'd be a sick conversation. Like, that'd be very cool. Yeah, I love philosophy. That's actually one of the one of the people that I like to listen to. Even I'll give him a shout out now too. Who's a very very smart from a, a Sam Harris, you no, know, a hormones perspective, uh, pharmacology and endocrinology and all that kind of stuff. But self taught is a guy named Joe Jeffrey from the UK. But he okay. actually started out uh, in philosophy in his studies and hated studying. But he's only like twenty six. He's super young, but he like knows a lot. But it's all now to the point where he's just like. I really like this. So he just taught himself at all. Whereas being told what to do at school, I think was something that just didn't fit with him. And he was doing completely non-science related things because he thought he hated science. And then he just sort of found himself in this world of like bodybuilding a bit and all that kind of stuff. And now he's like probably one of the go-to guys for understanding those sides of things, which is super Hmm. interesting to have seen him progress so fast. Quick question on um, philosophy, Tom. Do you think there's many practical implications for philosophy? The study of? Well, I think yes. Um, but like probably a little bit loaded. I, um, I was actually, this is definitely a fun fact about me. Um, I was a part of my school's philosophy club when I was in like year nine and 10 and actually represented our school at a philosophy competition. I bet you got all um, the ladies. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> I, I, club, I, I did not know what a girl was for a very long time. Um, <laughs> Yeah, as you can obviously tell. Um, No, no, but like, I think in my head, so like, I I remember going to this competition um, and and there were all these people who'd actually learned about philosophy and were like quoting philosophers and this guy said this, this guy said that. And all I really, like, all I remember doing is just like talking about ideas. Mm. And I think like the immediately useful thing about learning philosophy is that it teaches you to talk about and think about things um, and appraise different ideas, even if you don't necessarily agree with them. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the only way to do that, but I think it's a useful way. Um, and I think it's important not just to get into the trap of like, like Kant said this, like Socrates said that, like, I think that's not as productive. Um, so I think the way that philosophy teaches people to think, like to, to think about thinking really and to like appraise ideas and sort of position themselves to like developing like a stance on a thing is quite useful. I think also particularly like, like stoicism is very trendy at the moment. Like I think stoicism is like a thing people are increasingly embracing as a means to like having a slightly more practical philosophy about how to live their life. Mm-hmm. Um, especially like broadly as society grows less religious and sort of progresses more towards this world of, well, like, like Nietzsche, right? Um, like Nietzsche's famous God is dead quote is like about how, like, how do we sort of scrap for and how do we find meaning and like derive a purpose and and like morality in a world where there's no higher power. And I think that what we're probably going to see in the future is people start to move, move towards philosophies like stoicism um, or even like Mill's utilitarianism, which is about maximizing the greatest good for the greatest number. Um, 
that's been used inappropriately a few times. Um, but I think like we'll find as people progress, a society becomes less bound to like a religious tradition in its like lawmaking and sort of moral evaluation of things. I think we'll find philosophy and the way we think about morality and right and wrong becomes increasingly important. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Because we're moving away from religiousness generally, I think um, science and technology are going to be our new higher powers. And I believe philosophy to have an increasing importance because there's scientists in their ivory tower. Apparently last time I went to see ivory tower, I said Eiffel tower. You did. In front of Eric Holmes. Oh my God. Um, yeah, ivory tower is we, we can't just be there saying, yeah, there's this drug and this technology without thinking about the implications for people that don't have as much privilege. Um, and so we need to be thinking about how can we use science and technology for the greatest good um, and not just to make the most amount of money or to or, prove myself right, or to win this race. Or, or as a means to actually play God, quote-unquote. Yeah. Because there is a lot of science behaviour that is designed or is centred around like wanting to be the God of... I would say my most interesting subject I ever did at uni was um, bio, a biotechnology subject under the banner of philosophy. So we looked at all different drugs and various technologies... Um, even like hip replacements or organ harvesting and stuff like that, and looked at their morality. Mm. In what ways is this wrong and in what ways is it right? And what should the legalities and the legislation and the limitations be? And I think like a really interesting part of that discussion is you sort of have like what's wrong and right on like both a micro and a macro scale. Mm. Like, like you think about like prolonging life or like improving fertility as an example. Um, like, on an individual level, like granting a couple who's not fertile the capacity to have children is like really incredible science. Um, and that potentially for those people is like a really, really good move. Um, but there are also individuals who are sort of making this argument about overpopulation. Um, and like, is it ethical to, for us to like, when there are so many people who already aren't properly cared for or looked after, introduce yeah. new, Awful. like not that that's my opinion, but that's a opinion people have. Um, yeah, it's really, and like, I think part of the issue with like Mill and like the greatest good for the greatest number is it's really easy in the numbers for people to get lost. Yeah. Um, and you start getting yourself into some really interesting discussions of like, if you were to kill one person for X or like, what's the, what's the net benefit for a person's life? Yeah, like, would it be okay to kill a terrorist if knowing that killing them on Tuesday means you stop them from dropping a bomb on a thousand people on Wednesday? Like, is killing always wrong? Mm. Or yeah, or well, it's like the it's the it's the baby healer discussion. Yeah. Mm. Like, if you go back in time, like, yeah, it's a really interesting one. Yeah, but but always looking at the greatest good for the greatest number, we can also think of as consequentialism. Mm. And that would mean that rape is okay in some situations. So if I pose this to you, if one woman uh, feels terrible about her rape from one man, but the man's pleasure is more than her horrible feelings, then it's still the greatest. Or let's say she was gang raped and there were 10 men and all 10 men got a lot of pleasure out of this one lady. 
their pleasure combined is greater than her pain. So consequentialism would say that that's okay. And that's not yeah. okay. So there's got no. to be some understandings and limitations to that. Mm. Well, yeah, well, it's like there's sort of got to be this this like marriage of like moral relativism and like moral absolutism, right? Like there've got to be things that are like with very limited caveats, like completely not okay. Mm. And then it's like, how do we, like knowing X, Y, Z is like not okay. How do we massage these other variables to make things as good as possible for as many people as possible? Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's, it's like we talked about, it's like, the more you talk about it, the more you realize the people who are at either end are wrong, at least some of the time. And there's this like magical intermediary point. Yeah. The middle ground. Yeah. Um, okay. Sorry. These are meant to be quick questions and I've totally <laughs> potted you. And cause I find this so interesting. What is a hobby or habit that if your partner picked it up, you would leave her for? <laughs> Oof. Um, Slides and socks. What? <laughs> yeah. Are you gonna leave me, Dean? That's all I've been living in this winter: slides and socks. Just slides and socks. I don't know if you classify it as a hobby. Maybe if you had different like different types yeah. of socks and stuff. But well, right yeah, now, actually, do you want to? For those um, watching on YouTube, read the back of my sock. <laughs> it says "Eat my taco." They're, they're, taco. they're taco socks. It's very inappropriate. And um, I have no professionalism, so I'll just show that to Tom, our new coach. Let's just say I'm glad you wear pants and not. <laughs> um, okay, sorry. Sidetracking once again. A hobby that you're, you would leave your partner for. I don't know. I'm like, I'm fairly relaxed. But I think also like generally if you're like people's hobbies often reflect part of their personality. So like, I think it's probably more likely that they would start like a really, like say they start a real hobby and that's like actually a reflection of like a deeper issue um, rather than like the hobby itself being the problem. So like wrist cutting. But that's not a hobby. What about like <laughs> butterfly collection? <laughs> oh my God. You know, oh, I'd, be down, I'd be down with butterfly collection. I reckon that's fine. You'd want a house full of like framed butterflies behind a glass like that, I'm talking like yeah. dead butterflies, not not like a, a sanctuary for butterflies. <laughs> well, like if that's what you're into, that's what you're into, I guess. Like, and I think also like the person who's into that is probably like someone who's generally like into nature and science and stuff. Um, and there's probably enough common ground there. Mm. Um, All right, I'll have to think of another. Yeah. <laughs> Go on, Tom. Yeah, what about lawn, lawn bowls? <laughs> no, don't oh, stop feeding so it. I'd be, I'd be old for me. I'd be on. I'd be stop <laughs> asking closed questions. We'll let Tom decide. <laughs> Thanks, mum and dad. Um, <laughs> gee, yeah, look, in all honesty, I can't think of a thing off the top of my head. What um, about? Um, what about? Don't you ask closed questions? Okay. That's yeah. what I'm saying. I was trying to feed different options here. Was just trying to all right. All right. He doesn't have one. He'll stay with you forever, no matter what you do. <laughs> Yeah, don't advertise that too loudly. <laughs> and you, the final question. You can ask it. Um, I don't know where it is. Oh, yeah. no would, peaking you, really? would you rather one nipple or two belly buttons? Uh, probably one nipple. Okay. Because like, I don't need them anyway. <laughs> that is you don't need them. I feel, well, but I feel like the second belly button would look weirder. Do you think so? Would it go yeah. what if it was vertically stacked though? It wouldn't be as bad as if it was horizontally stacked, I reckon. Well, it wouldn't be I think vertically stacked would be slightly better. Mm. But I still think like 
Well, like, they're both really inconsequential. Like, I probably wouldn't care if either happened to me. Um, if you had like, two belly buttons, does that mean you got double the food when you're a little baby? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I could be jacked. <laughs> like one of those jacked toddlers. Or fat. Take the belly button. <laughs> yeah. Mm. That's funny. That's um, funny. Now, usually we ask, where can people find you? But uh, if this podcast gets released, then they can find you at flex underscore success on Instagram or mm-hmm. flexsuccess.com.au. Yep. This is true. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's everything's looking good, Tom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so far, hey. it looks like this podcast has been released. <laughs> Imagine if we use this as a public shaming. <laughs> I actually don't we'll take it back. And then we post yeah, it. Call me out. <laughs> no, but it's been a pleasure talking to you thus far yeah, about the viewing process and now also on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for having me. I think it would be a really interesting listen for a lot of people. Yeah, and by the time this podcast gets released, uh, Tom's profile will be up on our website, flexsuccess.com.au. So you can check Tom out there, inquire if you're a large rodent looking to be tested on. Or Or a a small rodent. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) indeed. (laughs) All right, well, um, off we go. Nice chatting to you again, Tom. Thank you. Thank you.